This is the tale of an up-and-coming movie star named Roger Rabbit and a down-and-out private detective stay out. named Eddie Valiant. Ooga booga! Every moment they were together was a new adventure in trouble. Hi, me, Eddie! Hello, and welcome to Flashback, American Historians on Movies. I'm Katie Fapp, a doctoral student in American history at the University of Oxford's Rothermere American Institute, and I'm here to explore American history as seen through the, le- through the lens of America's most popular history maker, Hollywood. Each episode, I'm joined by another historian as we discuss a movie that covers their own field of expertise. Today, I'm joined by Josh Lappin to discuss 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit?, Robert Zemeckis's live-action-slash-animated comedy mystery based on the 1981 novel Who Censored Roger Rabbit and inspired by the decline of Pacific Electric, a mass transit system in 20th century Los Angeles. Josh is a DPhil student at the University of Oxford, and his research focuses on the politics of electrification and energy landscapes across the American West. Welcome, Josh. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, no, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and talk Roger Rabbit. Oh, yeah, I think this is going to be a good time. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, Before we get into what may seem to some listeners like a rogue choice for a podcast focused on American history and movies, do you want to get into your work a little bit so the listeners can um, figure out how it relates to the movie, maybe? Sure, sure. So uh, my main focus is the politics of electrification in Southern California. And uh, more broadly, I think about energy landscapes across the American West. This focus has really drawn me into thinking about the space of greater Los Angeles as it's uh, coming into its metropolitan self in the turn of the century, in the early decades of the 20th century. And therefore leads to me thinking a lot about things like the Pacific Electric, the largest uh, mass transit system in the world, and presumably one of the things we're going to be talking a lot about uh, today. Yes, I expect so. Um, Yeah, I think we've known each other for a few years now. Your work has always been really interesting. Um, And when I was doing a rewatch of Roger Rabbit recently, um, and I realized, I think it was the first rewatch I had done since I was an adult, um, not a child. (laughs) Uh, And I was really struck by all the jokes they kind of pepper in throughout the movie about... Uh, the red car, mm-hmm. the red cars, right? The red car, street cars, um, only to come to the end of the movie and discover, lo and behold, it was really about the red car, street cars all along, um, <laughs> in a way, which we can get into in a second here with the 60 second plot description. Um, yeah, no, very interesting. And when I was rewatching it, I was taken back to an, I think, a article you had in progress at that point with a map of how expansive the streetcar lines were in Los Angeles in the early 20th century. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like Josh's work. <laughs> um, but we can uh, get into it in a second. But before we get into the 60 second plot description, I was just wondering if what if any relationship you had with Roger Rabbit before I proposed we cover it for this podcast? Well, maybe slightly antagonistic relationship, I guess. I haven't seen the movie Ooh, until interesting. Okay. earlier this year, just totally coincidentally. But when I describe my work to people, I am always, you know, at least 95% of the time, the response I get from the kind of non-academic public is, oh, like Chinatown? Or, oh, like who framed yeah. Roger Rabbit? And I had seen Oh, Chinatown. so you do get Roger Rabbit. I do, yeah. It's about 50-50. Interesting, okay. But that's why I watched this movie, you know, originally back in mm-hmm. February. It was just, um, you know, a sense of impotence that drove me to figure out what the heck people were <laughs> referencing when they were boiling my years of work down to something they watched one time. <laughs> uh-huh. Have you seen Chinatown yet? I know we've yes, yeah, discussed I'm a, in the past. Yes, yeah, I'm a okay, big, so you, big you fan of Chinatown and had, had seen that Chinatown long before then. this, so I could at least engage with people when they said, oh, just like Chinatown? Uh, but, right. Perhaps the higher brow of the two, but we perhaps, can get into yeah, it. We'll see. Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and we will we will talk a little bit more about Chinatown. But again, before we get ahead of ourselves, um, I'm going to present you with the 60 second plot description oh, where I ask you to go over the plot of Who Framed Roger Rabbit in this case in 60 seconds or less, which has been done. I think the two previous guests I've recorded with have finished their um, 60. Not to put any pressure on you. Um, <sighs> 
but it is possible. All right, I can't ruin Depending on how much detail. Record, <laughs> oh no, I mean, uh, there, it's, it's certainly not a sterling record uh, by any account. So, <laughs> I mean, this is a very no complicated movie if we, if we stop to think about it. There's a lot going on. Yeah, I guess, you know, kind of like any like PI focused movie, there's, there's a lot kind of like twists and turns and a lot of people that die maybe and then you don't see but who are referenced throughout huh um so it's a it's a challenge it's certainly a challenge but you are up to it or if you're not up to it i'm asking you to do it anyways so uh, i'm going to start the timer if you're ready are you all sure let's do this take a stab all right and the timer is on now okay so this movie takes place first of all in a Los Angeles that's inhabited both by humans and by toons, cartoons, many of them real cartoons that we're familiar with in our world. The cartoons are invincible, they operate according to different laws of physics, and they mostly work as entertainers and as kind of broadly the help doing manual labor and service labor, and they live in a segregated area called Toontown. Uh, the movie follows Eddie Valiant, who's an alcoholic, uh, depressed private eye. He gets hired by a studio head uh, to look into uh, the potential cheating uh, of uh, a movie star's wife on a movie star. The movie star is Roger Rabbit, a toon, and his wife is Jessica Rabbit. So Eddie uh, trails Jessica Rabbit to her club, uh, figures out that there's uh, patty cake going on, uh, shows the photos to Roger. Roger goes berserk, and then the next day is accused of murdering uh, a wealthy businessman named Marvin Acme. Uh, this is where we meet this character, Judge Dune. Okay, that is oh, in a minute. No. <laughs> <laughs> you did. You oh. laid the groundwork very well. Oh um, no. <laughs> uh, you can finish up if you want to, just because we did. You know, I think you got to about twenty minutes into the movie, but. Okay. Well. <laughs> yeah. All right. Judge Doom, I think you were at. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to be shown how this is done later. Um, not the first time I've been accused of uh, of not being able to uh, boil something down briefly enough. <laughs> oh, I mean, same. Yeah, um, I think it. it yeah professional hazard. Um, so we Absolutely. meet Judge Doom and his two henchmen. Uh, he's the he, he's purchased his judgeship where he lords it over as kind of a judge, jury, and executioner in Toontown. In Toontown, but yeah. yeah. Um, and Judge Doom plans to catch Roger Rabbit and execute him. Uh, Eddie ends up reluctantly hiding Roger and gets dragged in after Roger explains that he's been framed for this murder. Eddie starts looking into it. He suspects Roger's cheating wife, Jessica. He trails her into Toontown, uh, uncovers a plot there. Um, this plot is that Doom, the judge of Toontown, also owns a company called Cloverleaf, and he's also just purchased the red car, Pacific Electric Company, and he plans to tear out the streetcars, build a freeway. Uh, to do so, he'll have to bulldoze Toontown, and he will become wildly wealthy by owning all of the gas stations and the low-budget motels and the convenience stores at the freeway off-ramps. And this is Doom's triumphant vision of Los Angeles. Um, there's some hijinks. Turns out that Doom is a tune in disguise. Eddie kills him. Mm. Uh, Roger and also killed Eddie's brother. Yes. Oh, yeah. Important detail there. Which is a character. Uh, he, yeah, Eddie's alcoholic because... His brother was killed by a tune. Yeah. Previously, two um, like crack uh, PIs who mostly focus on tune crime, um, only for his brother to be dropped a safe upon. <laughs> yeah, one time, one time, heroes of the tune community, and uh, Eddie mm. develops a an anti tune prejudice, which he works out uh, through through getting to know and love Roger over the course of the movie. The movie ends with the the. Um, Toons singing Smile and Be Happy. The wall that segregates Toontown off from the rest of LA has been shattered. The streetcars are saved. Um, much more than a minute. Everything's hunky-dory. No, I mean, it's like you said, I, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty complicated film to kind of distill down into 60 seconds, especially if you really want to get all the details, which I think this movie, I think uh, getting into a discussion of this movie, um, you kind of want to get those details. Mm -hmm. So, um, no, great. Great summation. Um, I think I just something to add there, although, yeah, great thing, is that you kill the tunes by this stuff called dip, which is like this, I think, what is it? It's, some, it's, it's like a mix. Turpentine is in there. Yeah. Benzene, turpentine, something else that essentially dissolves the Acetone, paint of the tunes. And I think the joke Acetone, is yeah. these are chemicals that would dissolve um, film. Ink, yeah, and, right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so. Yeah. interesting stuff going on. Um, yeah, and everything ends, and then Porky Pig says his famous, that's all folks, and then, <laughs> yeah, that's the movie. Um, cool, yeah. So who from Jar Jar Rabbit? Turns out it was Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom. Um, let's, I'm going to preface this. I feel like we, we will address the Chinatown in the room <laughs> shortly. <laughs> Um, I would just like to say, though, at the start of this, um, I, when I was doing my research for this, I didn't realize that this was based on a book. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's based on a 1981 novel, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which the movie loosely follows. Um, it sound, I have not read the book, but it sounds like the book gets into... Um, well, for, for starters, the biggest thing is that it's not filmed cartoons. It is about comic strips, like mm-hmm. New York... Or not New York, uh, newspaper comic mm-hmm. strips, right? So... Um, and Roger Rabbit dies in it. And the question is, and in this world, the film strip cartoons who also kind of, you know, live amongst humans, um, whenever they speak, like the the film, the speech bubble comes up. (laughs) And Roger Rabbit, the uh, comic cartoon, is found with a speech speech bubble that is empty. So that that comes into the who censored Roger Rabbit. So he was killed because he was about to say something. Um, and then the mystery goes out from there. I think it involves a genie, um, a, maybe for, perhaps a bit less robust. I mean, certainly I don't think it has any kind of like commentary on the urban development of Los Angeles like <laughs> the movie does. Um, and it was written by, uh, Disney brought the rights to the novel in shortly after it came out in 1981. And they were trying to develop it pre-Michael Eisner, um, who was kind of the CEO of Disney who turned really the company into a or into the Disney we know it as today. Um, And they were kind of shopping around working on it for a few years. And then they got Robert Zemeckis, who was actually initially interested in the project to start with. Um, But his first two movies were, uh, did not do very well financially. And then he did Back to the Future. (laughs) And it was off to the races, um, as you know, one of the most popular movies of all time. And he brought along Steven Spielberg to produce the the movie with the screenplay yes absolutely yeah and alvin silvestri who does the score as well um really and it's i really can't imagine it with anybody but robert zemeckis because i think both of them as well are such aficionados of this kind of period of hollywood history Mm -hmm. and i think that really comes across uh in their treatment of the screenplay as well Mm. um both guys i think known for pointing at the holes in the idealized past of like the 40s and 50s of America, especially if you think of like Back to the Future. Um, and that comes across in Who Framed Roger Rabbit as well. And I think with that, and then, okay, uh, I should say, this uh, screenplay is by Jeffrey Lawrence Price and Peter Stewart Seaman, who were kind of like Disney people. They'd written a bit for Disney before, um, back when Disney was kind of in really interested, I guess, like in the 70s and the 80s in the period, um, pre-Renaissance or animation Renaissance, when they're focusing mostly on live action comedies and, well, not even just comedies, live action movies. And they would go on to also write uh, Wild Wild West, which they received a Razzie nomination for, um, the 2000s How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and Shrek the Third, uh, which is notable for being thought of as the worst Shrek of the franchise. Um, so no comment there, but they <laughs> hit it out of the park. <laughs> they hit it out of the park with uh, Roger Rabbit. Um, and they took inspiration not only just from the source material, of course, but also from this alleged real-life happenstance of the dismantling of Pacific, the Pacific Electric Red Cars in Los Angeles in the mid 20th century, along with all the, um, you know, moving the subject from newspaper cartoons to, uh, you know, kind of Tex Avery, Looney Tunes, Disney cartoons. Oh, and then of course, so those two, and then finally Chinatown, which we now have arrived at the Chinatown in the room. Yeah, so Chinatown, (laughs) big movie. (laughs) Certainly um, a good movie. I enjoyed watching it. Uh, but it's something that definitely like looms over the historiography of um, everything. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly feels like, especially, um, I mean, we're both Western historians, broadly speaking, both in the sense that we are from the West and we focus on the West in our history. Um, and I, I mean, Chinatown was spoiled for me before 
I ever watched it because so many historians, I mean, it's not just historians doing this, but um, it's just, it's like history. It's, I, I think Chinatown might be the movie that I see historians reference the most in their work. I don't know if you feel the same. Well, I think it's definitely true for me because I'm constantly stuck in this LA historian milieu where it's Mm -hmm. inescapable. Um, But I think historians have a really complicated relationship with the movie because it, it has both helped to solidify a completely misleading vision of actual Los Angeles history, and it has really helped to galvanize people's interest in the real history. So it's, it's, it's always tough to talk about and tough to figure out how to feel about as a historian. Um, it's a give and take, right? Like yeah. you're happy that people are interested in it, but then they have this rather warped view of what it is. Mm-hmm. It's one of these conspiracy movies that has really shifted people's understanding of real history is a marker of its effectiveness um i think as a movie it's fantastic i, I guess maybe the, let's mm-hmm. go ahead for those who aren't aware I, I mean if you have not also not seen chinatown and if you would like to see chinatown unspoilered um maybe skip ahead a bit i can put it in the show notes of when you might want to skip ahead to um but chinatown follows similar to roger rabbit this kind of like conspiracy um that starts with a pi investigating um a marital affair and then turns into this sprawling uh, like yeah, conspiracy about water rights in Los Angeles. And it also centers kind of on um, the dam disaster, the San Francisco. I, San Francisco. I looked it up. Thank you. I am. Apologies to my parents who have said that word several times um, throughout my lifetime. Yes, San Francis Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> it's passable. I will avoid it. Anyways, Canyon uh, Dam disaster in was it 1920s? 1928. There we go. That's why you're the historian um, about this topic. So, yeah, and kind of basically water, right? Water rights. Uh, Mm -hmm. Conspiracy that people were draining reservoirs, I believe, in order to buy land cheaply, in order to expand Los Angeles County. Is that roughly your understanding of it? In the plot of the movie, the idea is to... The, the conspiracy is that uh, a series of wealthy, politically connected people in the city are diverting water um, to create a fake drought to drive uh, farmers in the San Fernando Valley out of business to mm-hmm. buy their land up for cheap, at which point they'll restore access to the water and okay. profit off of the okay. land. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, a, it's an amalgamation of a bunch of different threads of political argument and actual historical events from you know 30 years of LA's history kind of okay. all transported forward and set in the maybe the early 40s i think yeah i think it's like the late 30s okay. chinatown yeah um yeah so i mean i think you kind of gave a hint there but like yeah what is the not to make this also a chinatown episode but yeah, why not <laughs> keep it brief um <laughs> yeah well so the I, I guess maybe it's worth framing chinatown in relationship to roger rabbit and the things they've got in common yeah definitely um, i think you have the common i think Definitely yeah. the, um, the thread I see strongest is this idea that a group of politically connected and wealthy people who know about certain land development or are planning for land development trying to d- dismantle existing infrastructure, right, to, to profit off of that. Yeah, right. So these are both, they're both working in the genre of noir fiction, right? Yeah, that and, too. Yep. Um, that's a genre that comes in large part out of L.A. and is made famous by mm-hmm. L.A. writers and people like Raymond mm-hmm. Chandler. And both of these movies are consciously selecting and then playing off of the themes and tropes and the aesthetics of noir to make their case and to portray L.A. in a certain light. And I think none of it is historical coincidence that um, noir is coming out of Los Angeles and that these movies are choosing to stay in Los Angeles to do their noir thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is this long history in real life Los Angeles of public, the, the public sense that um, land and water and transit and kind of the material, the material reality of the physical space of Los Angeles is being manipulated and conspired about uh, and turned to the illicit profit of a, of a kind of group that's in control. And it starts with the story that Chinatown is based on. So the real history, which I, th- I think you were you were kind of asking me to go into earlier, mm. the real history that Chinatown kind of plays with is the history of the creation of Los Angeles's first major non-local water supply um, by the by this man William Mulholland, a self-trained 
engineer of Mulholland Drive. Yes, for instance, <laughs> who in mean, a whole other film we can come back to in a future episode. Um, <laughs> but God, yeah, I would love to cover that. Cool. One day. Um, so Los Angeles uh, becomes a boom town in the 1880s due to competition between two railroad companies and land speculation that takes place around around Los Angeles. And so Los Angeles's first growth from small town into larger and larger city is based on real estate speculation. And as the city continues to grow and these speculators uh, and everyone in the city sees an interest in making sure this growth can continue indefinitely, people in the city start looking forward and ahead to what limits the city's growth. And one of the things they alight on is water supply. Hmm. And Los Angeles was then getting its water from the Los Angeles River. There's a whole interesting conversation to be had about the Zanha system and the semi-socialized and communal way in which the town throughout the 19th century, you know, as a Mexican town and then later as an American town, did its water supply. But the Los Angeles River was not large or constant enough to supply the type of growth that people in the city were beginning to envision. And so William Mulholland builds an aqueduct to bring water from the Owens Valley. Which is north, that's like central California. Yeah, more, yeah. Right? Um, right. Close, to, close to 200 miles away and bring okay. that water down into Los Angeles. And uh, the people of Owens Valley feel like this water has been expropriated from them underhandedly. Uh, the story that grows up around this is one of conspiracy that uh, Los Angeles has stolen the water by um, kind of pulling it out from under the feet of the, the small farmers the Owens Valley. of the Owens Valley and bringing it to Los Angeles where a group of politically connected insiders own a bunch of farmland that they're going to be able to dramatically hike up the price of uh, due to the water that only they really know is coming. But that's the conspiracy as it gets framed at the time by some muckraking journalists and by some you know, political factions that becomes mm. immensely influential and really colors, even at the time, people's understanding of what's happening, okay. even as the population of Los Angeles is tremendously supportive. And I think this is the key thing for our next conspiracy and our story in general, right. is that the framing of a conspiracy is misleading, not because there was something underhanded happening, there was, um, but because it all happened out in the open with the approval of the public. Mm. And over and over again, the public endorsed what Mulholland was doing with full understanding of the water being taken from another place and brought to Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, and it is true that Mulholland profited. He was a landowner, but many, many people in the city were arranging in this city with, yeah, yeah, the city has this tradition of land speculation. And so um, to the extent people in the city felt it was sleazy uh, or underhanded, um, that was a legitimate judgment. But regardless of that, legitimate judgment, uh, they were included okay. uh, in that in that uh, whole project. I think that's a good maybe segue then to the conspiracy that Roger Rabbit, Roger Rabbit, <laughs> Roger Rabbit is um, centered around, which, you know, is similar, um, mm -hmm. but centered not around water rights, but the transportation of Los Angeles. Which, I mean, yeah. today, I, one of the reasons I was laughing so much like throughout the movie, for various reasons, um, was the fact that it, it is framed like being like, L.A. has such great public transport. And to anybody growing up in the early 21st century, um, I mean, I think L.A.'s reputation worldwide is known for being such a car-centered uh, city. And such an expansive city that you need right. a car to get around, right? Like the idea such a transit poor city. of Los Angeles having something as you know, iconic as the New York subway is a little bit um, laughable. Yeah, uh, but it is actually true that L.A. had the best public transit system in the world uh, in the early 20th century, and it's tied right in with all of the themes I was just discussing. So one of the ways in which L.A. really becomes uh, a, a serious, not just brief boom town, but center of growth, uh, center of real estate growth in particular in the Los Angeles in, in, sorry, in the United States, is through the efforts of this man, Henry Huntington, mm. who... Um, of the Huntington Library? Yes, yeah, okay. the yeah. Huntington Library, his, his mansion um, okay. and, and hobby library. Um, he, in, in his old age, uh, retreated to his mansion and uh, absorbed himself with gardening and book collecting. 
and left a massive library behind uh, with an endowment uh, that has turned into a research library, uh, among, yes. among other things. But the, the real story behind the streetcars uh, is that uh, Los Angeles had a variety of different public transit options in the last decades of the 20th century when streetcars, whether cable cars or horse-drawn cars, or increasingly in the 1890s, electric streetcars were popular in cities that were expanding across the United States and were used not just to tie together urban cores, but also to create the, the ability to suburbanize around the city mm -hmm. and to connect these commuter suburbs and green belt areas. sprawl that we associate with Western the, cities nowadays. Yeah, yeah, and so streetcars were actually initially a mechanism of that. And Huntington, coming actually from uh, experience and family fortune in the transcontinental railroad business, huh. and also experience in San Francisco's comp then competitive streetcar environment, mm -hmm. really had a good understanding of transit. And he made real estate investments in Los Angeles, and he differentiated them by providing the transit to connect what otherwise were, were far-flung plots of empty land to um, to metropolitan downtown Los Angeles. And really by 1910, in large part, the, the entire extent of modern sprawling me metropolitan Los Angeles has already been outlined in large part by Huntington and his mass transit oh, uh, there we go. company. Okay. So you could, in the 1910s, you could take uh, one of these electric streetcars traveling at 60 or 70 miles an hour in some cases, Whew. and you could take it from Santa Monica all the way to Riverside. And, wow, okay. You know, Expensive. 70 to 80 mile journey. How long, um, what was it like, I guess, maybe like getting, because I mean, one of the main things about Who Framed Roger Rabbit is um, kind of focused on the fact that Toontown needs to cease to exist, um, mm. I guess, in order to capitalize off of the the, you know, kind of, you know, the gas stations and roadside attractions that the freeway will bring. Um, and then, I mean, obviously that's based in Hollywood, right? Like it's very like locale. I mean, what was it? Obviously it was quite expensive to get around the greater Los Angeles area, but what was it like inner city? Do you have any idea or? Yes, there were originally two different, uh, two different major streetcar companies in the, in the okay. first decade of the 19. 19th hundreds there was the pacific electric which was largely interurban so that's the red car right longer distances that's the red car that okay we that's see what we see in the movie that's mm -hmm. the kind of famous iconic uh, los angeles streetcar but there's also the los angeles railway the yellow car okay that really operated you know with stops on a block by block basis doing the local downtown transportation within had the heavily built up core of los angeles um, and the, the whole ownership relationship of these two is complicated and it changes over time and there's no reason for us to go there. Okay. Um, but they both exist and they're filling these two distinct niches uh, that mm -hmm. together really make it possible to move around the entirety of this very, very large region. Now, what you're getting at in terms of displacement and the bulldozing of communities brings us to how we go from this public transit centric vision of, mm -hmm. of Los Angeles's geography to freeways and personal automobiles. And this is where the second conspiracy emerges. And there ah. is this, you know, long lived uh, urban legend in Los Angeles that the, what, the thing that relegated the streetcars to the past was a conspiracy between the oil companies and the automobile companies and the tire companies. Did you to, hear this growing up? I mean, you're, business. sorry, um, you're from yeah. Los Angeles. Like, did you hear this growing up? Oh yeah, all the as time. As a I, native. You know, and I should say the, the remnants of the Pacific Electric system, although the system has been gone for 60 or more years mm -hmm. now, they're still visible across Los Angeles. Um, I think in particular of when I used to, uh, my parents used to drive to visit my grandparents um, on Olympic and Cloverfield, um, the boundary between kind of West LA and, and Santa Monica. Uh, all through my childhood, there was an abandoned Pacific Electric right-of-way with an oh. old uh, car sitting on it. Uh, you can still see in the fabric of the city absolutely the the remnants of the of the red car. Um, a lot of Los Angeles's major boulevards, which um, are really important to the construction of the of the region, uh, have these wide green strips running down the middle, often planted with coral trees. And those were, uh, in many if not all cases, um, median rights of way for Pacific Electric lines. Okay, there we go. Right. So yeah, you hear about it a lot. You see it a lot. It's part of kind of the mythic fabric of the city mm -hmm. in a city that doesn't always pay very even attention to its past. I was saying, uh, Los Angeles, I mean, around. 
LA gets accused of a lot. Um, <laughs> and I think kind of disregarding its own history is one of those major things, isn't it? So it's interesting that you can yeah. still kind of see these remnants throughout the city. Yeah, I find it you know totally how to untrue, uh, by, just by the way, as a side note, that oh, same, disregards but... its own history. Yeah. <laughs> um, it just depends who you are talking about when you're mm -hmm. talking about LA, as, as always. Um, but, right, freeways. So this conspiracy is that oil companies, car companies, want to make Los Angeles the domain of the automobile and that they get together and form this secret partnership, buy out uh, the streetcar company, mm -hmm. Pacific Electric, put it out of business, replace the streetcars with buses, and grind the whole thing into the ground. And I think from my um, research, I found that mm -hmm. these companies were General Motors, who made the buses, mm -hmm. um, Firestone Tire and Rubber, mm -hmm. Standard Oil, which is now Chevron, mm -hmm. Um, and Phillips Petroleum. Yeah. So in, okay. yeah. in real life, that's the consortium that right. does end up buying Pacific Electric. As with Mulholland and water in the Owens Valley, we have to ask what we mean by conspiracy, though. Mm. Um, and I think the most important thing to say about this narrative is that these companies, while they did actually eventually put the Pacific Electric out of business, they didn't kill a thriving system. They killed okay. a dying system. Interesting. And really... The Pacific Electric, in terms of its revenues and its expansiveness and its popularity, uh, really peaked in the 1920s. Okay, interesting. And, and by yeah, then you start to see cars kind of ascendant then. Exactly, yeah. Mm. You, you know, the Pacific Electric has created this really sprawling urban environment. Um, and starting in the 20s, most new housing development is happening as infill between these kind of Pacific Electric destinations. Mm -hmm. And as people want to be able to move around to more places on this developing street grid, and as personal cars are getting more popular and cheaper, mm -hmm. people start turning to automobiles, and it starts to become very expensive for, the, for Pacific Electric to put in new stops and to put in new track, and not just to cover far-flung hubs in a kind of hub-and-spoke model, but right. actually to serve an entire grid mm -hmm. that is hundreds and hundreds of square miles. And so you see steady declines in ridership throughout the late 20s and then definitely in the 30s during the Depression. Okay. Um, you see a huge resurgence during World War II, both because you have a massive influx of war workers, you mm -hmm. have also Pacific Electric gets used to move a lot of material and uh, troops around Just, the city. Okay. And also there's uh, gasoline rationing. Of and course, so the right. government is encouraging people to return to the Pacific Electric system. But after World War II, right, this is the second wave of... Uh, automobile culture and automobile purchasing mm -hmm. and the Pacific Electric really starts to go into a very steep decline. Um, so by the time National Cities line, City Lines, which is this consortium that's uh, owned by GM and Firestone and all of these companies, They're the Clover buys it out. Of, They're, yeah, yeah, effectively yeah. the Clover Leaf. Clover Leaf. Uh, there we go. In Roger Rabbit, by the time they buy this system out, uh, it's ailing. Which isn't to say that the, this was predetermined and unavoidable, but it is to say that, again, just like with water, this wasn't a secret conspiracy to deprive the people of something they loved. This was the people wanted of decades and decades of choices Okay. by not all Angelinos, right, but by upper and middle class Angelinos who deserted mm. this system in favor of personal cars. Um, there's a lot more to say about why cars and the Pacific Electric lines couldn't coexist. Okay. And about the many failed attempts to publicly subsidize this mass transit system. But the, Interesting. So this is this privately is owned at this point? Entirely, yeah. From, uh, from its okay. conception as, as Henry Huntington's real estate tool to its eventual decommissioning under national city lines. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, we, we can kind of talk about the movie now. I mean, we've been yeah. talking about the movie in a way, but no, that's very interesting. Thank you for kind of explaining that. I yeah. find it interesting that it has kind of developed into this conspiracy... I mean, I, I always understood it as fact that it was mm -hmm. kind of an underhanded conspiracy that these um, companies kind of bound together, dismantled the streetcar, and then took advantage of the freeways. But I mean, I think you're totally right in that, you know, we also have to, uh, uh, I mean, who is building the freeways, right? Like it has to be Los Angeles. It's the city and the state. The and city the itself. The federal yeah. government, right? Right. Um, and so, right. I'm not saying that this wasn't, when I, when I say that it's wrong to understand it as a, as a totally secret mm. cabal-style conspiracy, sure. I don't mean that it was actually good. Um, it was a disaster in a lot of ways. Um, and I don't mean that it wasn't underhanded. I think you know GM and Firestone weren't upfront about their very real economic interests okay. 
in transitioning the streetcar system to um, to an underfunded and not very reliable bus system. Okay. Um, but right, like you point out, these freeways were getting built um, with public money, right? And with you know the support of an ever growing number of car users, who you know there's a vicious spiral here, where as growing car traffic makes streetcar travel slower. Mm-hmm. more and more people decide that they'd rather own a car than have ride a the car, streetcar. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's the, so the, it, it, it is it is a public decision, not by everyone, but by the groups that are most right. enfranchised. And certainly not just Los by a man, society. a scary man in a trench coat um, who was looking to kill tunes. Right. No. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's not, I mean, Judge Doom has his corollaries in LA history. Okay, interesting. But not yeah. his corollary. He doesn't have a corollary in the story of what happens to the Pacific Electric. Okay. Except wow. insofar as he's kind of he kind of illustrates how um, this is seen as a privatization, even though, as you pointed out, right, this is actually just the replacement of one private company by others. Okay. Right. Um, yeah. But people really felt that Pacific Electric provided a public service, uh, mm-hmm. and so there there is kind of the the political rhetoric of privatization, and so it's I think also not a coincidence that the system meets its ultimate demise in the 50s. Mm. Interesting, interesting. Uh, no, I mean, thank you for explaining that to us. Um, yeah. Again, like, this is part of the reason why I do this podcast. Like, you know, like, what uh, what we are learning from Roger Rabbit um, as a piece of history, right, is that, I mean, it's very suggestive. I don't think anybody goes away from Roger Rabbit thinking, ah, yes, that is what happened. <laughs> not the least because <laughs> cartoons do not live amongst us. Um, mm-hmm. But it is interesting to kind of, I don't know, like like you kind of suggested, I think, in your plot description, read it against the grain of how we can understand tunes functioning in this world, mm-hmm. um, the world that Roger represents us, this alternate history of 1947, um, of these cartoons as a separate group who have their own enclave in Hollywood um, and are threatened when somebody finds it politically expedient to not bull I mean bulldoze literally but you know kind of use them to their own ends and I think the movie does an interesting kind of job at like kind of I mean because you're right part of the fun of Roger Rabbit is watching this and going like cartoons like I know these guys right you're watching um Daffy Duck and Donald Duck duke it out on pianos Mm -hmm. um the sequence where Eddie Valiant finally does go back into Toontown I assume after a very long period, I think for the first time since his brother was murdered right. there, we assume, um, and kind of just this very surreal. Do you know what tunnel that is, by the way, actually, that he like drives into get into yeah, Toontown? Yeah, that's, a, that's, is... a, that's a freeway tunnel, actually. Okay, so it's quite um, actually a famous tunnel, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it connects, yeah, it connects downtown LA to Pasadena in the same Diego But right, but yeah, kind of going through this tunnel and like entering into this surreal world of Toontown, um, where we, you know, he can, kind of continues to meet other like famous cartoons like Droopy Dog. Um, that is also where the famous meeting between Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse happens, which I believe has not happened since, um, at least with the approval of either Disney or Warner Brothers. <laughs> um, but I, anyways, I'm getting off track here as I try to integrate this cartoon world. But I mean, like when we first are presented with the tune, I mean, the movie opens with this, this amazing um, animated short that is very reminiscent of the kind of Tex Avery, Warner Brothers and Disney to a certain extent. Um cartoons that feature this very like violent slapstick between Mm -hmm. Roger and this baby Herman and we can kind of understand the dynamic much like Tom and Jerry or like Sylvester and Tweety Bird that one of them is kind of like the innocent who's just (laughs) um, you know he's a baby right he's just trying to get Mm -hmm. cookies and stuff Um, and Roger is left in charge of him and he is the one who takes the brunt of the comedic violence as Mm -hmm. he tries to protect his baby um, and this amazing sequence, and then it kind of zooms out, and we find out that in this world, at least, cartoon sequences are not drawn by people, but rather filmed. They're actually like you know, a, like yeah, like you would film like any other movie. Comedic um, gold. It's so funny. Yeah, um, and yeah, like you said, I think also in your kind of introduction, like cartoons are not physically harmed. Um, but then, as we kind of zoom out to that, we see Eddie Valiant watching this um, filming production, and we kind of see the way. I mean, it's hard to, it's an interesting dynamic because baby Herman is also his kind of comedic genius comes from the fact that he is a baby, like drawn as a baby, but is, has like the voice and demeanor of like a 50 year old man. Um, 
and is just like very rude and you see this cigar chomping pervert yeah literally (laughs) who is a baby (laughs) yeah but he's a baby right and he has to be pushed around in like a stroller by like his girlfriend or like what um like assistant or something um and but whereas roger is very um i mean this is kind of the same thing like you know he's cartoonish the director yells at him for not getting the um you know when he i think a fridge lands on him Mm -hmm. um and he's supposed to dream up of stars and he dreams up of birds instead kind of in the classic yeah. cartoony um spiraling around his head right but we get yeah, yeah. we get this idea maybe that like tunes are not as accepted uh, or i don't know there's maybe not the respect isn't there right um and then we do meet eddie uh or we see eddie meet the head of these tunes or maroon cartoons i believe is mm-hmm. the name of this fictional studio with the lead maroon or the head of the studio boss maroon um and dumbo kind of he's yes thank you for clarifying who's a human um and we see several disney characters including dumbo and some people from the cast of fantasia as he says because he gets them for peanuts so there's like an interesting i guess what i'm trying to say here is that the 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 movie kind of builds up this idea of maybe i mean thank god like it doesn't i feel like if somebody made roger rabbit today like not a remake but just or i mean no even if somebody tried to remake roger rabbit today I feel like there would be a impetus or like a com- somebody like a need to like explain why the cartoons or like where the cartoons came to be, you know, like how cartoons mm-hmm. exist in this world with humans. And thankfully, this movie does not try to explain that. Like, it's not trying to say like, oh, we draw the cartoons and they exist, right? It's just kind of a, <laughs> it's an accepted fact that the cartoons live in this world with humans. Um, but the dynamic between them is very interesting where I do think to an extent there is a sense that the cartoons are seen maybe as not like second-hand citizens, but or well, they're, they're, second-hand, they're, second-tier citizens, right? They're racially or, oppressed, right? I, yeah. I think we should talk about this in terms of Los Angeles. There we go. Yeah, so if you want to jump in now with the history of yeah. LA and yeah. Yeah, and this is another linkage to Chinatown, right? Like yes. Chinatown yes. uses Los Angeles as Chinatown as um, a cipher and an imaginary location of seediness and violence and corruption. Mm-hmm. And in the in the story of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Toontown, this Toontown segregated is, place yeah. where these these workers who are looked down upon and not paid well, right? They're literally Dumbo's paid in peanuts. Peanut, peanut, peanuts, uh, and they yeah. joke about it. Yeah. Um, and who who exist kind of to to perform the entertainment work uh, mm. in human Los Angeles uh, where they live, uh, and and which is going to go ahead and get bulldozed for a freeway. Yeah. Right, like Who Framed Roger Rabbit is really very explicitly thinking of a kind of melding a bunch of different minority neighborhoods throughout Los Angeles's history, thinking about Chinatown and about a variety of different black neighborhoods, about the, the multiracial working class neighborhood of Boyle Heights, mm. which en- which ends up getting carved up by oh at least three, maybe half a dozen freeways. Over the course of a couple of decades, um, right, the story of the construction of the freeways in Los Angeles is even to a greater extent than in cities around the rest of the United States. Where exactly, because yeah, it's a common trope. story yeah, elsewhere yeah. as well. Yeah, it's the it's the story of displacement and dispossession of minority communities. Mm. Um, so that's definitely what's going on. I think, as you were mentioning, Baby Herman and the kind of <laughs> comedic incongruity of what he looks like and who he is that's mm-hmm. actually i think also core to what roger rabbit is doing in a way that's also connected to the the tunes is uh kind of racialized status in this in world movie. yeah yeah um that the whole movie is challenging you as the viewer both through the plot and through the actual fabric of the movie mm. um to consider your stereotypes and your expectations of who people are based on what they look like. Yeah, and, and there's another, the main, also <clears throat> Jessica Rabbit is a massive, yes. Um, yes. like, you know, kind of aspect of that as well. Where, I mean, the, I think the most famous line, and I think this also came from the novel, the I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way, right? Like right, this, cause, like a fantastic line. Yeah, and if you aren't aware of Jessica Rabbit, um, like, just Google her. Um, <laughs> kind of, at least not in a my... Rabbit, not, no, not a rabbit. That is her married name. Um, is the wife of Roger Rabbit, and she kind of becomes maybe the suggestion of... Did she frame Roger Rabbit, right? Um, but is drawn... I mean, she takes... Uh, I think Richard Williams took inspiration for her from, like, Rita Hayworth, 
and Veronica Lake and you know all these just like bombshell stars of the 1940s and she's but also the most cartoons like Betty Boop right yes and Betty Boop is also in this cartoons. movie right yeah, yeah and she has a great cameo right yeah she does um and that, that was actually the original Betty Boop the, the voice actress um, oh really wow yeah uh her name is May hold on I wrote it down I wrote it down uh yes May Kestel as Betty Boop uh, they got her back for the voice, as they did Mel Blank as well um, for like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and Porky Pig. Um, but anyways, yes, she's just just the most sexually drawn cartoon um, ever. Maybe like it is kind of ludicrous, like her proportions and stuff. Um, and like yeah, like we said, I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Yeah, and we should this say this is the expectation, right? Like yes. Within the plot of the movie, she's a sex symbol too. She's yes. working in a nightclub. She works in a nightclub. And one of the things, I mean, the, this movie frames a lot of things that it hopes the, re, the, the the viewer will think about. Yeah. It never quite forces you to think about no, them. No, it's but, never really explicit at all. Right. But um, Eddie Valiant latches on to Jessica Rabbit as the suspect um, in the framing of her own husband, Roger Rabbit, in large part because he looks at her and he sees someone who's bad, right? Yeah who's like affiliated with seediness and mm-hmm. vice because of how she looks and mm-hmm. the work she does. And I just, just to like fully bring the circle that I started to sketch between Chinatown and Roger Rabbit to a close, right? Yeah. They're both dependent on this idea of um, a racial ghetto as the location of corruption and vice in Los Angeles. Mm. And I mean, especially in Chinatown, um, right. But also in this movie, where Doc, where um, Judge Doom turns out to be a tune, explicitly everyone in the plot continues to think of these locations this way. But what you actually come to realize through the movie is that the seediness and the vice it doesn't exist in Chinatown. It doesn't exist in Toontown. It exists in the elite spaces of Los Angeles as mm. a whole, and that the work that. Um, the, the, the mental work that someone like Jake Gittes or to a lesser extent Eddie Valiant does in in displacing all of this sin and shame and rot and corruption mm. onto these uh, ghettos um, is really in the face of all the evidence. Right. Um, I think that's really important uh, to what both of these are doing. And that that has its you know obvious and direct ties to the history of Los Angeles um, and its, you know, brutal geographically disparate racialized policing uh, where certain parts of the city and the metropolitan area are for a hundred years held up uh, as kind of centers of vice and crime and Mm -hmm. iniquity Mm -hmm. uh, in ways that just aren't borne out in in the actual reality uh, of the history of kind of of horrific uh, consequences no, I mean, that's exactly why I wanted to have this conversation, because I feel like it takes a historian of Los Angeles urban planning and electrification to kind of draw those connections for us. Right. Um, and in, in L.A. history, I guess, just one last thought. Yeah, of course. The person who Judge Doom is, he's not one person. But yeah, he has I think you mentioned this a, earlier. A that's connection. Kind of that, maybe. Yeah. He's a variety of different law enforcement figures in L.A. history. Okay, um, yeah. And I think the, the best analog... Um, well, there are a lot of choices coming up all the way to the chief of the Los Angeles Police Department in the 90s. Mm. Um, but um, the best analog is um, to compare Judge Doom and his squad of uh, weasel henchmen. Which is also, I think, the, another thing, know, right? Because his henchmen are all cartoons themselves. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but like they're, they're Los Angeles' vice squad which mm. operated in some of the same decades that this movie kind of loosely situates itself and nominally tackled gambling and booze running and major crimes, but actually, for the most part, just cracked heads um, in support of um, anti-union uh, efforts by the big okay. by the big corporations, mm-hmm. anti-red anti- efforts, yeah. and, and efforts at um, de facto segregation. Um, okay. So really, really just um, this paramilitary, totally unaccountable, uh, supposed so-called police officers Which we see, I think, roughshod through the city. And Roger Rabbit, I mean, I'm always surprised the first kind of like when they're we're telling the audience about dip, the substance that can, is like, I guess, represented in the movie, the only thing that can harm a tune. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of like a, 
a barrel of it in the back of his car, his squad car. And he just grabs a shoe cart, like a cartoon shoe that's kind of about, um, without any like remorse. They're just like, okay, I'll, and you know, it's not just like a cartoon shoe, right? It has a face. Like it's, um, right. (laughs) It's a tune. It's a tune. Yeah. It's, we can assume this tune has feelings and whatnot as all other tunes we see in the movie. It's a person in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And he summarily. And he dips him. Yeah. Yep. His role as judge is not actually to preside over a court of law Mm -hmm. or to like, you know, participate in a justice system his job is to go around with his van full of weasels Mm -hmm. and commit extrajudicial murder Um, yeah 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 and that's what roger is running from when he kind of gets tangled up the betty valley yes exactly um because there is no question as to whether who killed so i guess yeah the um the man that we think roger killed or that they think roger killed is uh acme marvin acme Mm-hmm. Um, a little nod, not a little nod, but a nod to the, um, <laughs> to kind of like the, the, you know, you watch an old Looney Tune cartoon and stuff and all the stuff, uh, like the gadgets and, uh, sold things seem to be sold by this one company, Acme. And in this movie is actualized mm-hmm. as Marvin Acme's own company. Mm-hmm. He's also a jokester, um, who was caught playing literal patty cake with Jessica and yeah, very scandalous. It's I I love that reveal the fact that they're like oh they're playing patty cake, and then they show you the pictures and they're literally just playing patty cake, um is again like brilliant the way this movie kind of like toes a line um between your typical kind of like noir assumptions about vice um and the fact that it is still a Disney movie is mm-hmm. like a, a hat trick um <laughs> but I'm getting ahead of myself uh why did I bring up Marvin Acme, well it's gone. Okay, I, I actually I can't guess why you brought up Marvin Acme. So if it comes back, I'm curious. Thank um, but you. maybe one one more thought because you were talking about noir again. Mm, yeah. We've both been calling. We've both been talking about this movie as noir, and I actually think it is not a noir movie in the okay. end. Okay. Are you a noir purist to kind well, of like I, noir I think... being the 30s and 40s or? No, no. I mean, this is you know this is set in the 40s. Sure. Um, but I think it's important in terms of looking at the plot that. Um, Noir is all about disillusionment and disenchantment. Right. Um, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit has a happy ending, right? It doesn't Disney end Disney movie, with, right? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't end with the discovery yeah. that the that you, you can't actually put all the pieces together as the mm-hmm. intrepid detective and you can't bring corruption to the light because the corruption is bigger than you and bigger than everything you thought you could rely on. And the right. corruption it, it doesn't is have the a forget it, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown moment. There's no yeah, forget right. it, it's Toontown movie, moment. Like, what what happens in the end is that the the triumphant it does turn out that the corruption is actually is actually a single dude yeah one and dude and that dude dies can, yeah um and then the wall between Toontown and Los Angeles is shattered mm-hmm. and the tunes and the people all walk into the distance singing smile and be happy mm-hmm. and the streetcars are saved and Toontown is now collectively owned by the tunes themselves yes they've been granted it in Marvin Acme's will yes um. It's an ending that is liberatory and collective and just immensely optimistic. Um, Eddie Valiant learns not just to to respect tunes again, but also to laugh. Yeah. And he, you know, it, you know, in a side plot that's like really barely developed, he like rekindles his long, his on again, off again romance. Right with Dolores. Um, um, yeah, this is a this is a happy ending, and it's not just because it's a Disney movie. It's it no. like it takes a different vision of Los Angeles and of where Los Angeles's problems come from than a movie like Chinatown or another one we haven't talked about in this L.A. noir genre is L.A. Confidential. Ah, both I haven't of those seen that movies, one, actually. Oh, all right. Well, I won't, no. I won't say how it ends yeah, then, okay. um, Thank but you. it's yeah. great, and you should see it. Yeah. And but I think it's, it's a... really the third leg of this Interesting. movie triangle okay. here. I'll have to get um, on that. Um, yeah. I think I, for a second there, I thought you were going to say Blade Runner or something, I think, which is also another... Mm, yeah. But that's you know a future. It's interesting you can you know, put them on a spectrum of understanding Los Angeles. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. No, I mean I think I cut you off though. I think were you going to say anything else about this like kind of triumphant vision of future Los Angeles or? No, but I think it's it's, it's worth noting because um, thanks in part to Hollywood, LA's understanding of its own past and therefore its own present and future is so entangled yeah. with these ideas of disillusionment and and defeat and mm. corruption um it's actually it's actually a substantial choice i think for this movie to go 
in a different direction, even if that direction does conveniently make it more family friendly. Right. Of course. Um, No, I agree. I think that's also kind of maybe just kind of acknowledge this. I don't think we have the time to get into it or maybe even the expertise because as much as I do love like movies and considering movies as history, I'm not super up to date on my Hollywood history. That's kind of the third aspect of Roger Rabbit that maybe we do not have the faculties to discuss here, right? Is this <laughs> the way it's so intertwined with looking at this golden age of Hollywood um, and also the golden age of animation and the studio system and the way the tunes function within that. But again, a conversation that we cannot really get into. Um, but I think you're right in that like Hollywood is, it's, it's really in, entangled, isn't it? Between the kind of like the production of LA, how it sees itself and also act the actual production of that history and past, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which again, yeah. Uh, sorry to anybody who is looking for some Hollywood history with this episode. Yeah. I can give one little piece actually. Actually, yeah, um, go ahead. Really quickly, um, which is I was talking with my partner, Sarah, who um, exists in this world of animators and uh, graphics. Really? Okay, yeah. And she was pointing out, I think really helpfully, uh, that there is actually in putting these tunes these cartoons mm-hmm. next to these live action actors mm. there is actually a reference back to the early history of animation uh, when animators and performers would interact on a live stage with their animations and ah. also when when kind of films that were partially live action and partially hand animated right because it's an old history more regularity there's a few silent yeah. films that are you know combo live action mm-hmm. animated mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it shows up in Disney's Fantasia as well. Mickey Mouse is talking to the silhouette of the conductor. Right, yeah. And there is this tradition that starts in vaudeville. And it's, I think the the reason that's of interest to us is that this is a reference, the, the whole kind of like fabric of this movie is a reference back to the time before cartoons were classified and siloed and before Looney Tunes and Bugs Bunny and a variety of other classic examples turn cartoons into something for kids, something that was slapstick and lighthearted and lacking in content and that Mm -hmm. didn't tell a meaningful story about the real world. And it's just, right, it's just like Jessica Rabbit being not bad, but just drawn this way. The whole movie is asking you to challenge your assumptions about what a cartoon can do. That's really great. And I mean, I think it's something we should also stick to today. I mean, one of my biggest gripes is, I mean, I'm a fan of animation. um, And as much as I do you know i continue to consume disney movies and stuff with a critical eye but just um just the general movie going public's assumption of what a cartoon can be and like what an animated movie is Mm -hmm. is one of something i find incredibly frustrating um all the time i mean there's so many great i don't want like adult animation right so you think of like studio ghibli but also beyond that um just like a lot of interesting stuff coming from other parts of the world as well and even independent uh creators or mm-hmm. filmmakers in America who are who use the medium of cartoon to go beyond kind of what we yeah, like what you said what we think of as like kind of family fair empty headed um, stuff and it's more than that it can always be more than that it's just another medium of film right. yeah and it connects back again to this film's questions about race and gender in Los Angeles yeah. and asking what what we allow by our expectations different people to do um, yeah, and maybe one one less optimistic note to end on is that Disney made this movie. It was technologically incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm. They pulled pulled copyright on all sorts of different. It's it's impressive. You know, as you made a yeah. reference, and to, there's like, a few failures, but they characters. pretty much got a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, and they they did something surprisingly serious and complex with cartoons. It got a great reception, and then Disney never really tried it again fully. Right. Which is there's Space Jam, which yeah. is a lot of fun. Not Disney, but it's not. Uh, and not Disney Warner Brothers but yeah yeah so yeah Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. great segue reception of this (laughs) film Um, this is at the time of release it was the 20th highest grossing film of all time Um, Roger Rabbit was a massive success massive smash hit it went way over budget Um, Michael Eisner was very stressed about it and Jeffrey Katzenberg another studio head at Disney kind of convinced him to keep with it and I'm glad they did because it's a great movie Um, I think most people most people agree with that uh, it was also the second biggest film box office-wise in 1988, only behind Rain Man, which I believe was the best picture winner that year, or at least at the 89 Oscars. Uh, and like you said, it was critically acclaimed for its craftsmanship. It was nominated for several Academy Awards, uh, Best Film Editing, Sound Effects, Visual Effects, Art Direction, Cinematography, and Sound. 
Uh, it won editing, sound effects, visual effects, and a special achievement for Richard Williams, the man who oversaw the animation on the production. And I think it's really important to kind of hit home that this movie, like for coming out in 1988, is a technical master. I think we so much of our film today is kind of saturated with this idea of like tennis ball acting, you know, where you're in CGI, you're in these costumes that can like pick up your body movements and visual effects can be later applied. The Roger Rabbit is before major advancements in digital animation that will happen in the early 90s. So everything was hand-drawn and everything kind of augmented and stitched back into the live-action filming. And the fact that the actors did so well with it as well. I mean, you think Bob Hoskins, having he took mime classes in order to really kind of learn how to move his body and like interact with these characters who were not there. Um, it's just amazing. Um, it was It is preserved in the National Film Registry in, in 2016. And it's interesting that you bring up that Disney has kind of forgotten it because it does have a bit of a long history of attempts. Correct, cause it made loads of money. And even as kind of how complicated it is, that doesn't mean that Disney's not going to stiff up its nose. Um, so most recently, there's kind of been a, or the, like within like last week, a spiritual successor, I would say to it, called Chippendale Rescue Rangers that focuses on the, you know, Chippendale, another two people from Disney's extensive cartoon canon uh, existing in the current world with other people and makes quite a few references to Roger Rabbit. Um, I watched it. It's fine. It's not as <laughs> uh, kind of like groundbreaking, I think, as Roger Rabbit, but it certainly is interesting with how it references the history of animation. Um, and there was a planned, there was efforts to make a sequel. J.J. Uh, Abrams was penned at one point to write a script um, that was canned. And I'm just going to quote this from Wikipedia. Um, this is something else. Zemeckis and Spielberg were still interested in producing this. Um, but this is the first plot of, um, and I saved this for Josh because it's in, <laughs> I, I read it and I couldn't believe my eyes. Um, so it wouldn't have been a sequel. It would have been a prequel. Uh, and it would have followed Roger Rabbit's early years living on a farm in the Midwestern U.S. With a human Richie Davenport, Roger travels west to seek his mother in the process meeting Jessica Krepnik, his future wife, a struggling Hollywood actress. While Roger and Richie are enlisting in the army, Jessica is kidnapped and forced to make pro-Nazi German broadcasts. Roger and Richie must save her by going into Nazi-occupied Europe, accompanied by several other tunes in their army pl platoon. And I believe this would have been called Roger Rabbit Cartoon Platoon. Um, what a horrible <laughs> idea. <laughs> oh, just wait. After their triumph, Roger and Richie are given a Hollywood Boulevard parade, and Roger is reunited with his father and mother, who is, or sorry, his father, Bugs Bunny. Um, so this was the original plan for a sequel, which is uh, a lot. Um, it Spielberg. Like the plot of Zootopia. <laughs> huh. A bit, yeah. I mean, the, the Nazi stuff is really <laughs> something, <laughs> which Spielberg also thought. Um, he decided he declined to kind of you know support this idea after uh making schindler's list and decided that he could not um uh support like you know satirization of nazis anymore i think is a good move good move on his part um and also and ever since then there's kind of been various different ideas bandied around disney uh as to a roger rabbit sequel including one where he's like vaudeville buddies with mickey mouse um and another where he is just a Broadway star generally. Um, but, you know, as we know, nothing's happened. Robert Zemeckis, most recently in 2018, has mentioned possibly doing a Roger Rabbit sequel that he'd like to. But he thinks that Disney would be too scared to do what he wants to do, which, looking at Robert Zemeckis' recent outlook, I don't doubt. But, he, I don't know, he has a long-standing relationship with Disney, so maybe... Um, and he certainly loves to push the boundaries of visual effects technology. So well, maybe we will see a Roger Rabbit sequel in the future. Yeah. I I'll doubt just it say that be. not everything needs a sequel. <laughs> so true. So true. So I think that's pretty much everything. Uh, I, I think I kind of alluded to as well. Reception wise, I mean, this movie was a smash hit. Has received almost no historical attention. Again, not surprising because it is a movie primarily about a world where cartoons and people live together. And I yeah, think it's not... You know, what can you really expect from a bunch of cartoons? No, exactly. And I don't think it's we can expect historians to turn to Roger Rabbit, to turn to Roger Rabbit 
in the same way that they have turned to uh, Chinatown in exploring the history of Los Angeles and its urban development. Great. Um, thank you so much, Josh, for coming on this podcast and talking yeah, about your rabbit. Thanks for doing this, being extremely serious and straight-faced about an extremely funny and uh, lighthearted movie. I'm here to give the movies a fair shake. Uh, <laughs> so with that, uh, is there anything you'd like to plug um, as to like where people can find you or your work? Sure. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm writing on a daily basis next to Katie at the Rodermere American Institute. If you want to hear my musings on things like this, uh, you can find me on Twitter at jlappin1. Excellent. Uh, listeners, go follow Josh on Twitter. And with that, I will start our outro. Um, that has been our episode on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us on Twitter at Flashback Histopod. That is F-L-S-H-B-C-K-H-I-S-T-O-P-O-D. We will be back again soon to take another look at American history on the silver screen. Until then, goodbye.